Kings Island Excellent. Especially welcome visitors too and those that are here on Noah's behalf. Say as I've learned to know Noah better over the last Integrity and a man can fit more corn in a crooked row. Anyway. This morning I want to continue the theme uh, from two weeks ago, the birth of the New Testament church. And the last six months have kind of been a bit of a loose uh, series, I guess you would say, but looking at God's plan for the church, God's plan for his people. Uh, I did speak from Matthew 16 two weeks ago, and we know the story there. Jesus asked his disciples who people were saying he was, and then he asked them who they said he was. And Peter answered that he was Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said then, on this rock, I will build my church. We look at the church, uh, the beginning stages, and as well as how it continues today uh, through thousand years of, of growth and changes, I want to keep that thought uh, first and foremost in the center that Christ will build his church. That goes along with what we said here of working for God's approval and not each other's or someone else's. The church is God's design. It's his plan for his chosen people. And as I said before, it's one of his main purposes in sending his son to earth to usher in the new era of the church in his unfolding plan. And yes, we know that he does need our help to make this plan happen, but ultimately the church is about Jesus Christ and it's not about the men and women that are involved in that. It's not about a particular group, particular pastor, or even a particular person or anything. And Paul recognized this fact and he spelled it out very well for us uh, by giving a real life example in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 17, I would like to read this passage. I think it's a, a good reminder for us as we look at church building. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 17. If you would, stand with me again while we read this passage. First Corinthians 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. Until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you still are not able. You are still carnal, for where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, you are not carnal and behaving like mere men. Are you not carnal like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul. Another says, I am of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, 
another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, yet it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Thank you. You can be seated. So by all appearances, the people here of this day were not much different than they are today. And we know Paul had preached to these people. He had made a number of journeys, missionary journeys, and had planted a lot of churches and planted the first seeds of Christianity among these people. And then Apollos came later, uh, teaching, discipling, and nurturing these new believers. And history tells us that Apollos was an Egyptian Jew. Um, he was a very gifted, enthusiastic preacher whose knowledge of the gospel was initially limited to what John the Baptist had preached, uh, that of repentance and faith in the coming Messiah. And if we would jump ahead, Acts chapter 18, uh, his preaching was heard by Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife team, who then took him aside and brought him up to date on Jesus' life, his ministry, death and resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now all of a sudden, Apollos had this complete picture, and his enthusiasm grew even more, and he boldly and very confidently preached and debated uh, these newfound truths with growing churches and also um, just in towns in general. It, it's just, it brings out that he was, he was very verbal in his, in his faith. So he was building on what Paul had started earlier. And so here we have uh, the same purpose, but we have two different personalities, uh, two different approaches in spreading the gospel, and two different methods in relating to people. I know that's one thing I find for myself. Um, probably if all four of us were like me, we would struggle. So we all relate differently to people. Um, that's, that's the way God created us. And we all have our gifts and our strengths and our weaknesses. And I think that was the case here with Paul and Apollos as well. And as is natural, some people identify with Paul. Uh, they felt he was the one that had brought them to Christ. And they felt very close to him. Others felt closer to Apollos. Um, and their personalities connected differently to different styles of leadership. They began identifying with their respective favorites. So I hope that's not any of us, but I think as human nature is, um, if we're honest, we all do have our favorites. That's, that's natural. Um, we connect with people that think like us, uh, connect with people um, that have similar personalities to us. And nothing wrong with this except when we focus too much on this and then it starts to cause divisions as it did here. And I came across the phrase, people who follow the messenger too often lose sight of the message. Apparently that started to happen here, and Paul was very sternly warning them to keep their focus upward and not on those around them. And he laments here in verse 1 that he must speak to them not as spiritual equals, but instead as he would to an unbeliever, carnal. Um, that word which would indicate someone who really has very little 
uh, spiritual depth at all. At best, they had to have the truth fed to them in bottle form as one would feed an infant. And we know an infant is very is unable to grasp the larger picture in life, and he only focuses on having his or her personal needs met as they come along at the moment. Uh, a newborn is very selfish. As those of you that have it and those of us that remember it know, it doesn't bother them a bit to wake up in the middle of the night if they're hungry or have another need. Um, they'll just as well scream in the middle of the night as they will in the middle of the day. They want their needs to be met. And Paul is saying the Corinthians here were acting in a very similar way. They chose sides based on which side made them feel better and which side felt that they felt met their needs better. And so it was causing a division here. Paul reminds them in verse 5 and 6 that only God can bring an increase. And as diligent we are in our own efforts, without God, our work won't prosper. I had to think of um, anybody who's planted seeds, whether it's a gardener, whether it's a farmer, um, you know, you can do everything just right. Um, you can you can till the soil just right. You can plant it just the right depth. But if um, the rains don't come or too many rains come or whatever happens, and that little spark of life does not germinate in that seed, um, it will never grow and there will be a harvest. So as much as important as our efforts are, without God to actually give the increase, there will never be a harvest. Paul brings out here the one that plants and the one that waters are both equally necessary. Without either of them, the plant cannot grow. I think that applies very much to a setting uh, like we have here. Um, we have both kinds of people, those that are, are seen. Um, I have Sunday school teachers, song leaders, um, pastors like myself here. But we are not the only ones that are responsible for making those seeds grow. We did not have people behind the scenes. Um, I know you ladies have prayer partners. Uh, people like that, that encourage, that speak, that never get the opportunity, which you're welcome to have now and then, up here. Um, but you do your job very importantly in what you are able to do. And that is something that is brought out here that, that is equally important. The story is told of a lady who observed two men in a truck moving alongside the highway. The truck would move a few feet. Then the first man would jump out, dig a small hole, climb back in the truck. A few minutes later, the second man would climb out. He would gently cover the hole with dirt again. He'd sprinkle some water on it and climb back in the truck. The truck would move ahead a couple of feet. And the process would, go, would be repeated over and over again. So after watching him for a few minutes, the lady approached the driver and said, you know, what are you guys doing? Oh, the man said, well, we have some grant money that we're using to plant some trees along this stretch of highway to make it more beautiful. But the man who puts the trees in the hole is sick today. So they were doing their job, um, but obviously they took their job very importantly. They continued to do their job, um, even though they were missing a very important part, but they were so focused on their roles that they missed the bigger picture and what the ultimate goal of that project was meant to accomplish. Let's remember, too, that as, as important as our roles are, the other roles are also very important. Um, those little trees would never grow, obviously, because they simply do not exist. Then Paul switches to the illustration of the church as a building. And as we know, all good buildings must begin with a good foundation, especially if they are in New York, where it freezes, it thaws, things move. A foundation is extremely essential, or the building will not last. It says in verse 11 here that foundation must be Jesus Christ. Without 
that foundation, the church that is built on, will not stand the test of time. Then he moves on and says, what we build on that foundation is also very important, as it will one day be tested. And what he describes here being tested by fire, um, I don't totally understand how that's going to be, but he is saying that generally what we build on, um, obviously if you build a house, the care chosen in building with quality materials is going to last longer than if you build with, yeah, cheap stuff. Um, the same holds true in a church. The foundation might be very solid. We might build a church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but then the structure, the program, the goals, the means and methods that we use of increasing the church, growing that church, how do we go about that? Does our focus remain correct? That is what will be tested one day um, by God's testing fire, and that is what is also will or will not stand the test of time there. It reminds us again that we individually, as well as collectively, are the New Testament temple where God dwells. His church is that. For most of us, this passage is probably familiar, and it jumps ahead uh, a number of years in chronologically here. I think if you look at the beginnings of the early church, it's very important for us to keep in mind that then, as well as today, whose church this really is. And it's not about the leaders, it's not about the members, but it is about Christ. And if we lose sight of that, uh, we are destroying our own foundation here. Let's go back to and look at Matthew 16, a couple of things I skipped over last time. Chapter 16. Reread uh, verses 16 through 20 again. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of age shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. My disciples, they should tell no one that he is Jesus Christ. So verse 16, Peter had just answered his question about who he was by declaring that he was Christ. I said last time that um, foundation of Christ, or Christ is the foundation of the church. Without that firmly and truly established, nothing that will, that will be built later will last. And Jesus is saying here that clearly his church will last. Um, some way, somehow, whether Peter was faithful or not, his church will last, uh, not just through time, but through eternity as well. I mentioned this morning in Sunday school class the necessity of both Jesus' death and resurrection. And I believe, you know, his death saved us from eternity of judgment. His resurrection then enables us an eternity of reward. Falls on into heaven. That's what Jesus is asking or is saying here. His church will continue on beyond time as we know it here. And he says the gates of hell or of death cannot stop it. We know death is not able to stop that. He proved that by his resurrection, and our lives also will prove that one day as we continue beyond death. Again, Jesus telling his disciples this, um, they were still very unclear as to what his, his future was going to be. I think this is one of those statements that they remembered in the future and said, oh, he did say that back then. 
and it made a lot more sense to them than it did at the time he said it here. Now there's some differing opinions on what exactly he's referring to by the rock in verse 18. Some say it's an actual place, that there's a rock close to where they were, where one of the first churches was built. Uh, some say it's Peter's statement about Jesus, his declaration that he was the Christ, that that is the rock. Others say it's Peter himself, and they combine that with the statement in verse 19 of the keys of heaven being given to Peter. And then we get these ideas of St. Peter standing guard at the gate of heaven, deciding who or who may not enter. I, I don't think that's what, in fact, I know it's not what Jesus had in mind when he was saying this here. So Peter was not given a, 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 a superhuman status here. Uh, we'll one day stand before God who will judge us, not St. Peter. I know that's, those are fairly common. St. Peter guarding the gate, and that's, that's not where this is going here. Nevertheless, uh, giving the keys of anything to somebody indicates the sharing of a certain amount of control or of authority. And this statement being made to Peter, Peter, I believe, representing the church at large, we must recognize that we have been entrusted with a certain level of authority that we should not be taken lightly. And to what extent that authority goes is not exactly clear. I've heard it said by some that God writes down our church agreements and standards and makes them the law of heaven. And I would, again, tend to disagree with that slightly. Um, God is the one and only truth, and one day he will judge the world uh, by that truth and that truth alone. And for man to assume that same position, I feel, is a bit presumptuous. We're very comfortable leaving the judging of the world to God. We will, however, see if we move into Acts here, uh, not today, but in the future, that as the early church grew, they did encounter situations that they needed to decide what was right or what was wrong for them in that time and situation. So they were forced to make judgments and decisions based on the situation at hand. And they did that, I believe, based under some of the authority that they were given here. And some of their decisions continue to be very relevant today while others do not, which leads me to believe that while the church is called to make those decisions for their time, based on their current situations that they may face, that those decisions are probably not etched in stone somewhere in heaven, although I do believe God calls us to honor those as they are made. Unless, of course, um, the decision is something that I already discussed clearly in the Bible, God addressed something, in which case um, they were etched in stone long before we got to them, and we shouldn't be deciding on those if they were already clearly spoken in God's word here. So that passage there is, is obviously open for some interpretation, some discussion. I would obviously um, welcome any of that. But what exactly it means, what, what Jesus meant here when he gave the keys to Peter here, or figuratively gave him here, what exactly he was, he was saying by that. Um, but I think, yes, the church has been given a degree of authority, and we are called to work from that authority as well. Anyway, this passage here in Matthew, uh, I think was only about midpoint or so in Jesus' ministry. Uh, he introduced the concept of the church here to the disciples, but he knew they still had much, much to learn before they were ready to begin on their own. He mentions again his coming death, and I didn't look it up, but does anyone know how often did Jesus mention his death, his resurrection, to his disciples 
in the, the years and months leading up to it. I don't know, it was a couple, couple dozen times, half a dozen times, I don't know. Um, but he continued to introduce them to this to try and help them <clears throat> understand what was coming. And yet most times it says they did not understand. And I think that was part of his reason in verse 20 here that they should not tell others is because the time was not yet right for that to be understood. Um, during his last sermon in John chapter 14 through 17, he speaks to them of a lot of things, but he also talks of sending them a comforter, and some versions say helper, and it's a spirit to guide them in the way of truth. Whereas in the Old Testament, they were guided by the law. In the New Testament, in the church, they were to be guided by the Holy Spirit, speaking into their lives, into their minds, speaking, guiding them, interpreting um, the way of truth. And that is what makes the concept of a church work today. The Old Testament, like I said, they needed laws. The holiness, if you please, was kind of forced on them. They had to do what they had to do. There was not much choice, or they were uh, dealt with severely sometimes. The New Testament church's holiness comes from within as we choose to follow the inner leadings of the Holy Spirit. Once again, Jesus explained this to them before they were able to understand it. Then when it did happen, they once again remembered this is what he had told them and again made sense. Jesus also prayed for the future church and us, if he's there in John chapter 17. I'll just read a few verses there. John chapter 17, kind of breaking in here, verse 20 through 23, John chapter 17. I do not pray for these alone. This was, this was speaking, um, he was in the group of disciples praying to his father and obviously referring to the 12 there or 11. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So as they would go out, as they would teach, as they would preach, he was also praying for all those who would become believers because of what the disciples had spread. They may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, that the glory which you gave me I have given them. They may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So there's a lot said there um, in that short um, couple verses there. We see Jesus' desire of what the church would look like, united as one in him, and then presenting him to the world in a way that people will be drawn to him. And he uses the word perfected in him and drawn closer to him, closer to each other. That I believe is his idea of a perfect church is one who is united um, both with each other but also very much united in what have for us. So Jesus went through, we know, um, the next couple chapters here in John with God's plan of redemption, uh, dying and rising again. I won't touch on that, but making the final sacrifice, he ended the Old Testament era of the law and began the New Testament era of grace. And in doing so, he opened the way for anyone who chooses to become one of God's children. No longer is someone born into God's family, all are born into sin, 
and all must then choose to be reborn to become one of God's children. So no longer is it an ethnic birth into God's family, but it's a spiritual birth. It's an adopted child, a child by choice, not simply by birth. Jesus met his disciples uh, a number of times then after his resurrection. And I want to look briefly at one of the final times, uh, John chapter 21. Jesus had risen from the dead, and he had appeared to his, his disciples a few times already. So they know he's alive, but they're a little unsure as to what comes next. Um, it's a time of, of waiting. Um, obviously, there's a lot of unexpected things that happen, and they're kind of just, he's not there with them every day anymore, and they don't know. And in verse 3, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but in verse 3, uh, John chapter 21, Peter announces that he's going fishing. Now, we know Peter was a fisherman by trade um, before Jesus called him. And I, when Jesus called him, him and his brother, they left yeah, they left their nets. They followed Jesus. It gives the indication they pretty much just walked away from their current occupation, their current job, and followed Jesus. Now, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And I kind of question how much he had done fishing in the last three years. He might have. I know that one time he went fishing with a, a line to catch their tax money. But beyond that, um, their regular fishing, I'm not sure. They might have done some. We don't read a lot of that. They still had their boats. We know that. But here Peter says um, he's going back in one sense to the life that he understood. I think this was possibly a turning point in Peter's life. Um, they loved, He loved Jesus, but he had also just denied him three times. And things weren't quite the same as they were beforehand. If Jesus hadn't stepped in at this point, I think Peter might have simply gone back to the life that he knew before Jesus came along. But Jesus did step in here. Now, they were out fishing, and uh, fishing wasn't going so good. At least a non-fisherman might say that. I don't know what they thought, but all night long, not a single fish. I would tend to think that was not a good night, but then again, I'm not a fisherman either. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up here, and suddenly their nets are bursting. And I just read a little interesting thing. Um, the, the use of the singular or plural in nets. They fished with nets, more than one. But Jesus said, cast your net on the other side. And Peter only threw in one net. So I don't know, was his faith a little weak? He said, well, you know, we fished all night with all the nets we had. I'm just going to try one net. Um, I'm not going to go in you know, wholeheartedly here. So he threw one net over, and that one came back, as we know, um, bursting. And so Jesus here is not making any easier for Peter to walk away again from a life that he knows. Um, they had a, a, a huge catch. I don't know what it was worth, but I'm guessing, you know, much more than what they were accustomed to catching in a single night. We also aren't told, but, you know, what happened to that net full of fish? Did it just lay there on the beach or did someone actually take it in? I don't know. Um, interesting questions, not really important here. Um, but Jesus talks to Peter then in verse 15 of John chapter 21. When they had eaten breakfast, uh, Jesus cooked breakfast, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And again, the word these is referring to the fish, is it referring to Peter's uh, life, referring to Peter's friends, I don't know. Um, but Jesus, uh, Peter answered, he said to him, yes, Lord, I, you know that I love you. He said to him, 
feed my lambs. Said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. Said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you, you know all things. You know that I love you. You said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you that when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. When you were old, you will stretch out your hands, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spake, signifying to what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Three times Jesus asked Peter if Peter loved him. And I don't know, was that three times to, um, because of three times Peter denied him? But three times Peter answered yes, and each time Jesus told him to feed or to tend his sheep. And Jesus here was calling Peter to a new calling in life. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. Now Jesus was calling him to be a shepherd. And there are some similarities. They probably smell similar. Um, but beyond that, um, a fisherman seeks. He goes out, he tries to find um, something and hopefully he comes back with something. A shepherd is a little bit different. A shepherd has a flock that he is caring for, but at times also does need to go out and search for them. Um, so instead of just um, fishing and catching and moving on, there is, there is the aspect of caring and tending for the needs of a flock that you have there. A shepherd is very different from a fisherman at that. Uh, guiding and protecting those were more vulnerable than him. This was a very life-changing moment for Peter, and I think he left those nets at least as an occupation for the final time here. But Jesus warned him that it wouldn't be easy. Uh, there'd be hard times, even to death. Uh, he kind of gives Peter an idea of what will happen to him in the future. But he says, repeats what he first said when he met Peter, and that is, follow me. Even as Jesus is giving Peter the job of being a leader, being a shepherd, he's also reminding him to still be a follower. Uh, even as Peter would become a great leader in the church, he still needed to remain a follower of Jesus. Without that, um, he would have lost track of where he was going. Again, very, very uh, um, important advice for us as well. Even as we do lead in our respective positions, we still need to continue to follow. Jesus' last conversation with his disciples is recorded in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We'll do this next week in Sunday school. We'll talk more about it then. But just read it quickly here. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. There's a couple other variations of this conversation in the other Gospels, but the message is very much the same. The message is go. And it's saying uh, go near, go far, but go is obviously speaking of action. They had spent three years in classroom, as we might call it, and now the time had come to put what they had learned into practice and to go. Jesus had given them the knowledge. In a few days, the Holy Spirit would come and fill them with the power that they would need. And, and as we will hopefully look at here in the future, uh, God's church 
will be born and would grow very, very rapidly, uh, extremely rapidly. Face opposition, persecution from the outside, and it would face integration um, in ethnic groups, different religious backgrounds on the inside, as well as division that too often comes with that sort of thing. The apostles would gain courage. They would gain boldness to preach the word as they had seen it firsthand. They would write the accounts that we have in front of us today for future generations, for us. And the spark here had been ignited. The flames had started and the fire would spread very quickly, starting at Jerusalem. But as Jesus predicted here, it would spread and continues to spread to the ends of the earth. This new church continues to grow. It's filled with his love and embraces his truth and does not lose sight of the goal, presses on until he returns to usher in the next phase, not seen yet. Let's continue to be faithful to that calling as we, as we go throughout our, our days, our weeks, um, our responsibilities. Let's remember that it is God that gives the increase, but we are called to work in our respective roles as well. Let's stand for prayer and remain standing for the final song. Father in heaven, we thank you for the records you have been given us of real people, just like us, who lived long ago. People who, like us, given an assignment. People who are often called to step away from what was familiar to them, comfortable to them in life, in order to follow the way you had for them. Give us not only the courage, but also the strength to follow where you would have us to go. Help us to remember, always keep our focus on you, not on ourselves, and our own accomplishments. Guide and direct us, grant us safety in the coming week. 